0: morning. Let's pray. Father, would you please open our eyes to see your glory afresh this morning. Would you open our, our ears to hear your voice speaking to us. Speak to us, please, as individuals, but as a church as well. We confess our need of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. My, my my brother at the moment is training for a marathon. He's uh, he's been filmed and analysed, and they've watched him run. and He's got the right shoes. He's he's following some kind of training plan, heading out on long runs and short runs. He's watching his diet, eating loads of pasta, all that kind of stuff. and And because he lives in Oxford, he was hoping to run the Abingdon Marathon, just you know, fifteen minutes down the road, little easy journey on the A34. It turns out when he tried to register, though. For the Abingdon Marathon, he was too late. It was full. So he found something else at a similar time. So he's heading to Inverness. (laughs) It'll, it'll be his first marathon. Hopefully not his last. But I was, I was chatting to him recently and there are two things he's pretty certain of as he looks ahead, I think, to the run next week. The first is that he is completely confident he will finish the race. It might be naive optimism. He might end up crawling, but he started and so he will finish. He's not going to haul himself up to Inverness without hauling himself over the line at the end of the day. He will finish. The second, he says, is that when running is really hard, when you hit, I think it's the wall at kind of 16 to 20 miles or something, you Runners will know more about this than me. When everything in him screams stop, it's visualizing the end that will keep him going, he says. The elation, the happiness, as you cross the finish line. For the marathon runner, the finish at the end of the race impacts the reality in the middle of the race. It affects how you run. I'll let you know how he does. But it strikes me as we kind of properly get into our series in Philippians this week. As Paul starts his letter, there are two very similar ideas going on as Paul prays for the Philippian church, that they both spring from the importance of the end. They both spring from the day that Jesus comes back. Can you see them? So 1 verse 6 Paul is joyfully confident, and he has ultimate grounds for confidence, but joyfully confident the work God has started in the Philippian Christians will be finished on the day of Christ. God is at work. God will finish his work in his people. His is not the potentially naive confidence of the first-time marathon runner. Paul is confident because he personally knows the God who brings life, the God who raises the dead to life. Paul encourages them in verse 6. But then secondly in verse 10, he do you see it in the prayer he prays that they would be a church increasingly looking like what they will be on the day that Jesus comes back. So then they will be finally pure and blameless. At the finish line, that is what they will look like. Fruitful lives. Live to the glory and praise of God. And so now, more and more, Paul prays they will look like that. Full of love for Him and one another, living well in God's world. That's the kind of overview we'll be looking at this morning. But before we jump in, just a couple of reminders. You've had some of it already in the kids slots. But last time, last Sunday, we were thinking about challenging things. It was where we find our joy, our gladness, our rejoicing. Remember, it was extraordinary. Paul's abundant joy was not so much in the trimmings, in the circumstances, in the here and now, not in what he has or doesn't have, but in Christ. And in the progress of the Philippian Christians, he defined himself in terms of Christ. He was the footnote, the story was about Jesus. We might say he was so captivated by Jesus that captivity in prison didn't really matter that much. And as Andy just taught the kids, it was, the joy glasses was a, someone um, from home group on Wednesday. It's as if Paul is able to put these glasses on and see the world differently. He sees the world in terms of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing, which which means he's always got the resources for joy. It's not elusive for Paul. It's a reality on Monday morning because the gospel is a reality on Monday morning. It's a reality on Monday morning because Jesus is still at work on Monday morning. And you see, this day of Christ that Paul talks of is so important. It's so important for Paul and his framework of the world. It's, I'm just not sure that's true for us. If I'm honest. I think for us and our world, pretty much it's instant gratification. It's the now, it's the trimmings, it's our circumstances. And so we take our eyes off Jesus and we, we find joy in the wrong things and we forget he's coming back and we lose sight of the reality. But but maybe if the day of Christ was more real for us, maybe if it was part of our everyday thinking, part of our framework, maybe something we, we believed even, Maybe we wouldn't find joy in the here and now so much because we wouldn't have such a tendency to try and cram in all we can to the here and now so much because we know this is not all there is. And he's coming back. So into the verses. Let's see how this works, this day of Christ reality framework, how it impacts what Paul says to the Philippians. The first one is that he has a joyful confidence of completion for the day of Christ. Now, we saw something of the joyful partnership last week, if you remember. Paul's joy is tied up in the O bit of joy, their progress in the faith, in others. Surprising, because Paul is is often painted as a cold fish, and he's not. Surprising, too, because we know the reality of our hearts, and people hurt us, so we, we pull back from them. We don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We don't allow ourselves to find joy in the progress of others or or them in us because we get hurt. We want to protect ourselves. We keep a distance. But not so, Paul. He he models Christ-like affection for Christ's people. Have a look at verses 3 and 4, and then verse 7 and 8. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And then verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He he loves them. He loves them. He has this expansive joy in verse 3 and 4. Every time I remember you in all of my prayers, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of their partnership, verse five. What does that look like? Well, you can see something of it in Acts sixteen. You can see an initial partnership because they trust Christ. And they become his. They become family. You see it as well because they are partners in suffering for the gospel with Paul. Again, Acts sixteen, but also it's it's not a memory, it's there in one verse twenty nine of Philippians. You see, it's still happening. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. They're partners because they suffer together for the gospel. They they stand with Paul when the heat has turned up, and it would be easy to leave. Or maybe it's thirdly, it's it's partnering financially with him. It's giving. They get out the checkbook. They go without themselves. They send money. They make it possible for Paul to minister so he can continue to share Christ on his travels. There's more of that in chapter 4 and verse 15 to 16. He writes, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So he has this genuine love, this joy, because of their partnership with him in the gospel. He sees how they they have stood with Paul. And he's joyful and thankful for that. And I'll be frank and say, that is something I can relate to here at Magdalen Road. it's a genuine joy, firstly, to see something of that lived out in, in the church in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places. We've heard some of it already with Andrew and Ruth and their quiet, behind-the-scenes partnership service. But very different people all around the church, standing with one another for Christ, the gospel partnership being lived out, working hard, laboring, suffering. Putting in the prep. Turning up early to help, to stay behind late to help. Going to visit people, providing a meal for people. It's a joy to see something of that partnership in the body here. It's a genuine privilege. I'm thankful to God for that privilege. Another example, personally, an example from Tuesday night at our elders' meeting. We talked about all kinds of things. We talked till gone 11 o'clock about all kinds of things. But we started off by thinking together from Philippians off the back of last Sunday, how can we help ourselves and how can we help Magdalen Road find true joy in Christ and not focus on the trimmings, the circumstances of life, but genuinely to delight in him. Personal joy from partnership with brothers who have the privilege with me of serving you in leading this church. I get something of Paul's joy as he sees partnership worked out. But he's joyful for more than that. Have a look down. He's joyful because he can confidently pray that God will finish the work he started in his people. See how verse 5 flows through to verse 6? Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is such an important verse for us to latch on to, for all of us, but particularly perhaps if life is hard. If you're going through the mill at the moment, keep hold of 1 verse 6. Let that verse comfort you and encourage you and and help you along as you run the race. Know that because of him you will finish. Do you see, it means that God is at work in his people, which means in the now, we can be sure that in the midst of the mess, whatever that mess might be, we can trust he's at work. He is with you. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He will cause you to complete the race. He is continuing his good work in you. And maybe there's confusion and maybe there are seeming dead ends and maybe there are false starts and delays and hurts and all kinds of things. But he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I was trying to think this through um, in terms of Philippians, particularly as we work our way through for the next few weeks and months, may be an example from chapter 2. Later on, at the start of chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, he will urge them as a church. Do you remember these verses? They haunted me as a teenager because they were such a challenge. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others above yourselves in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. They've haunted me as a teenager, they haunt me now. It is a big ask and it is a big task. But you see, he is the master craftsman. He is at work. He will finish the job. He is carefully and lovingly chiselling and changing us. And it may be painful and it may not be nice. But it's for our good. It's transforming us to be more like His Son, so that we might have more of the mindset of Jesus. Maybe, maybe getting rid of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Maybe making us humble, so we look around and consider others' needs before our own. Maybe it is having that framework of thinking that Jesus has. And so, one verse six. Be encouraged. Imagine being a part of a church like that. Imagine that, because one day we will be, because one day he will finish. And that will be us. And that will be extraordinary. And you see, he's God's not like us. He's not the kind of God with half-finished DIY projects everywhere. Because he got distracted by other things, or he's unearthed other issues and think, wow, well, I can't finish that now. Or he's run out of steam, or run out of money, or, no, no, no. He will finish the job. Be encouraged. Do, do you hate your indwelling sin, your ongoing daily sin? Well, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not naivety. He will finish the race. The second one. The second way that this day of Christ impacts the now is that increasingly we will be ready for the day of Christ, that what we'll be like at the end will be increasingly obvious for now. Let me read again from verse 9 to 11. This is the prayer, and this is my prayer says Paul, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just take 20 seconds to have a look down and see if you can work out how the prayer works Do you see do you see the end result I think is verse 10 11 that is we finish up with a church ready for the day of Christ looking like Jesus finally finished finally perfected but but more and more he wants them to show that now that they wouldn't just stand still and stall in their christian life In their godliness. But that they would grow and flourish. And be changed. And so I I take it this is something of the verse 6. Good work that he is doing in us. This is what it looks like for the Philippians. What is this good work that the Lord is doing? What is he busy up to? Well, the prayer, verse 9. He prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love that abounds more and more. He, he doesn't say who it's for, the love, which likely means that it's a love for God and a love for one another. It's, it's the vertical love and it's horizontal love. It may well be a particular issue in, in Philippi. We saw it last week. Do you remember with Euodia and Syntyche, chapter 4? There's this division happened there. There's a lack of unity, it seems. There's factions, so maybe maybe the love that he prays for them is that these factions would not be allowed to continue. But because of their love for God and one another, then they are united in Christ. But the love he prays is not a kind of Hollywood mushy emotional love. This is a thinking, practical love. Verse 9, do you see? It's a knowledge and insight love. And I take it the knowledge word is a relational knowing God word. And the insight word is a wisdom in how we live word. Which means the abundant flow of love that he prays for with a growing knowledge of God leads to practical, wise, daily living. Do you see, if you know God better, you know how to live in his world better. It makes more sense because you know who made the world and why he made it, so you know how to live. But then that leads on; it doesn't stop there. It leads on to them being able to discern what is best. What's that? Your life, your week, is a an opportunity for choices decisions, alternatives, what to do, what to say, how to react, what not to do, what not to say, how not to react, when to do it, whether to do it. And so if you've got this initial overflow of love with a growing knowledge of God, leading to practical wisdom in how to live, well then you can discern what is best. The choices you make will be the right ones. You'll live well for him in his world as his people. You'll recognize the reality of the day of Christ. And so that will shape the kind of decisions that you make, the choices that you take. But maybe it's, maybe it's whether you go for that job, which has so many benefits, but it means you're moving to a new city and you're not sure about churches and you're not sure about friends. And what choice do you make? Maybe it's whether you spend your money on that thing that you so want that you dream of, that toy that Andy was speaking of for the kids. But you know if you do, if you do, you're not sure you'll be able to give it up. Maybe it's knowing what to fill your diary with, who to fill your diary with, what to spend your time thinking about. And we think the little things don't matter that much, but they begin to shape us and mould us. And we begin to find our joy in them and the trimmings, the circumstances, but not in Christ, the little things that drag us from him. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may, you may be able to discern what is best. It's very grounded. It's very Monday morning. It's very nitty gritty. It's, it's got the day of Christ in mind. The finish line is there, but it's how does that impact You and me this week. The decisions that we make. Because on that day, he says, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. We will be pure and blameless. And again, maybe that is hard for you to believe. Because you look in and it's messy, isn't it? You know, the sin that you battle with. The things that go on behind closed doors and you you hate that sin. And you see lack of patience or bitterness or selfishness or inability to forgive or anger or pride or whatever it might be. and And you think, am I ever going to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, really? And we get hopeless and cynical. And we think, I've been fighting these sins for 20 years. I've turned over more leaves than you've had hot dinners. And Paul says, on that day, you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You will be fully pure and blameless. And it will be amazing. There's a sense in which, of course, those things are true for us now. There's something to be clear on. I was chatting with not here, one of my children yesterday about this. But you see, in Christ, as God the Father looks at you, he sees you with the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you with the perfect, pure, spotless righteousness of his Son. His account is credited to yours. His perfection is bestowed upon you. His righteousness is yours. You are forgiven. But in these bodies, in this place, we're a work in progress. We're still sanctified. Being sanctified, we're becoming who we truly already are in Christ. But in these bodies, we struggle and wrestle. We're not there yet. But on that day, it will be amazing. It will be as if we could. We look in the mirror and we think, "Who is that?" They're familiar, but I don't recognise that person. They maybe they're the me. Actually, they're the me that I longed to always be they look like me but i look like christ don't you long for that day when when the struggle of fighting sin is over when this broken world and in, in these broken bodies are a thing of the past and we can see him face to face maybe it seems too unreal Maybe it just seems too unlikely. And so your question is, how am I supposed to do this? I love it as an idea. I'm just not sure that's me. Well, don't forget how the verse continues, verse 11. Have a look. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Do you see, it's not about you and you looking inside and trying really hard and gritting your teeth and mustering up all your self-control and all your effort that you can. It's about Christ and his work in us, changing us to be more like himself. And, And when we're joined to him, when we're in Christ, when we're united by faith to him, remaining in him, we shall see his fruit growing in us. Paul imagines the Philippians on the day that Jesus returns and it's as if they're fruit trees at harvest time. Beautiful, bountiful branches hung low with ripe fruit, laden with, with righteous deeds that Christ has worked in them and through them and reflecting him and his character. And he longs for that day. Think, think love, joy, Peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. But worked out in practical life, worked out in daily, mundane, normal stuff. Small scale, one another, how we treat each other. the, The stuff that we don't think anyone's watching, but he is. Beautiful stuff. And why? Because... We'll see how the prayer ends. Why do this is to the glory and praise of God. It's not so that we'll take any credit, but the people will see how amazing he is. Just as we start to draw to a close, I think one of the things that's challenged me, as I've particularly been in these verses this week, is I don't think I'm that good at big picture praying. I don't think I'm great at letting day of Christ type ideas impact how I pray now. If you analyse my prayers, in reality it's probably much more about circumstances and trimmings and every day. And those things are good. It's right that we pray for them. God cares about the details. He cares about our anxieties and what we're going through in life. But... We must make room for these big picture things. To to shape us, to shape the kind of things that we pray for. To pray in light of the end. To pray that perhaps people in this room or our friends would abound more and more in love. In knowledge of God, in insight in how to live in his world. That we might discern what is best. So that on the day of Christ we might be laden with fruit. That he's grown in us. Which is why on your chairs, hopefully you have a postcard that looks a bit like that. As we finish our service after we've sung, I'd love you to have a think on the back perhaps about who you could write down and be praying for. For some of these kinds of things. It's very easy on a Sunday morning to to hear a sermon or to read a passage and kind of think, yes, and then very little happens. But maybe here's a chance to write some names down, to pop it in your Bible, and through this week or through this series or from here on in, you're praying for a group of people in a kind of Philippians kind of way. And then maybe, as Paul does here, in a bit, give it a month or two or something, why not tell them? So you've been praying for them, for these things. Wouldn't that be such an encouragement to hear, to hear that friends have been praying for you in these kinds of ways? But can I say, as well as that, more than that, perhaps, please, pray for us together as a church. This is a letter to a church, to a group, to the corporate They perhaps pray that living this life, that running this race together, we might increasingly be a community shaped by the day of Christ. That it wouldn't just be a doctrinal tick box or something in the Apostles' Creed that we say, but would actually actually impact daily stuff. That verse 6, we would be encouraged and comforted and confident that God will finish The race. He will complete the good work that he has started in us, that we will cross the line. But also, then, that increasingly, 9 to 11, we might be shaped now by what we will be when Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and our tendency to get caught up in the here and now and the stuff that we can see and the tangible daily things. As so we long that you would would rewire our thinking, you would change our framework such that the day of Christ Jesus would increasingly shape who we are. For those of us, please, tired of fighting sin, tired of the brokenness of this world, of our bodies, of our lives, that that we would be comforted and encouraged that you will finish the job that you have started in us. And we pray as well, Lord, that together we might increasingly be shaped by who we will be then, but that that will be seen now. Would our love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we might be able to discern what is best. That we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to the glory and praise of God. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.